Amen. Good morning, church. We're going to open God's Word, so I hope you have a Bible with you. Open it up to the book of 1 John, so you can just turn to the back of the Bible, Revelation, and then back up, turn left through uh, Jude and 3 John, 2 John, 1 John chapter 5 is where we're going to be here this morning. Guests who are here, welcome. Joy to have you here. I hope you come away encouraged from our time studying Scripture together and we're wrapping up the series that we started 13 weeks ago called Brand New. So um, I've referenced this book a number of times before because it's had a big impact on, on my life. Matter of fact, if you pulled it off my bookshelf, it's pretty tattered. Uh, but it's a book by a guy named Donald Whitney called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. And uh, this 13-week series has been sort of my effort, for what it's worth, at uh, what would I say in terms of the doctrine of regeneration, what, what it means and what it, how it lands in the lives of believers. What does it mean that God comes in, moves into our lives through his Holy Spirit? What starts changing as a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? And so here's what we've looked at. If you're uh, looking at the notes or taking notes, kind of a brand new reviewed Here's what we've looked at these past 13 weeks. So we looked at the doctrine of regeneration, main idea being we're alive to God, union and perseverance, we're joined to Christ and we're bearing fruit. We looked at scripture, we're being transformed by the word of God, so the importance of the Bible and how that forms us as disciples. Worship, so we gather to give God glory. We looked at prayer, this truth that we depend on God and intercede for others, speech, we speak to God in worship and speak redemptively to one another. Compassion, we're deepened by trials and minister to those in need. Repentance, we turn from sin and pursue godliness. Discipleship, we help others follow Jesus. Wisdom, we thrive by keeping God at the center of our lives. Riches, we know where true wealth is and live for the kingdom. Mission, we proclaim the gospel in word and deed. And here this morning, church, we belong to God and our faith is nurtured in a community of disciples. So that, that's my 13-week-long effort of saying, what happens? What are the new things that begin to stir in our lives as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the hearts of believers? And some of those things that are, I think, some of the most important ones and big themes that we see in the New Testament and in Scripture. So for that last truth, we're looking here at at first, John, it's, a, it's all about, the, the book as a whole is about all this newness that's firing in the lives of believers. As a matter of fact, we studied through First John a couple of years ago, and the name of the series was Signs of Life. So the, the vital signs, when you're looking for vital signs in the life of a believer, First John's walking you through one after another after another, all the things that are growing because God is at work. And the closing words, I love the closing words of First John because it ends on this note of assurance, and that's where I want us to finish our time in studying this series together. So if you'd follow along, 1 John chapter five, the closing words beginning in verse 14, and I'll read to the end. Apostle John writes these words under divine inspiration. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, 
and there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So a lot of my uh, closest friends at Grace King High School, public school, large public school in New Orleans that I went to, a lot of my friends happen to be Chinese. So if you saw a group of Chinese people and uh, my friend Carmen Martinez, so she was from Mexico, and then me. Uh, that was our squad, and we would walk around uh, Grace King. That was the group that I mostly hung out with. Well, probably my closest friend in that group was a guy named David Chin, and David lived on just three streets away on, on Wade Boulevard. So you'd, I'd just take, take a right on 39th, turn left on Wade, and there was David's house on the right-hand side. And uh, Entering into, stepping inside David Chen's house was a, a different world. It was a countercultural experience. And I don't just mean because his parents didn't speak much English. 90% of what his parents said, I didn't understand. They were speaking to him in uh, their native tongue, right? But, but it wasn't just the language thing. It, the whole house seemed to be run differently, than my own house and many of my other friends. And it wasn't until just a few years ago I came across an article by an American Chinese woman who, um, she was born in Illinois, but from China, family from China. And, and in the article, she's explaining the difference between parenting philosophy in the East and parenting philosophy in the West. Her Amy Chua, author and distinguished law professor at Yale, she went to Harvard, and then now she's a distinguished professor at Yale, has written a number of books, and here's what she wrote. And it was kind of a window into David Chen's house. It reminded me of life in the Chen household. She's, she writes these words. A lot of people wonder how Chinese parents raise such stereotypically successful kids. They wonder what these parents do to produce so many math whizzes and musical prodigies, what it's like inside the family and whether they could do it too. Well, I can tell them because I've done it. Here are some things my daughters, Sophia and Louisa, were never allowed to do. Attend a sleepover. Have a play date. Be in a school play. Complain about not being in a school play. <laughs> Watch TV or play computer games. Choose their own extracurricular activities. Get any grade less than an A. Not be the number one student in every subject except gym and drama. <laughs> play an instrument other than the piano or violin. Not play the piano or violin. And even when I read that article a few years ago, it was like, it was like the playbook in the Chen household. That's exactly what I saw when I walked into his house. It was like entering a different world. And I would suggest to you that the purpose of, behind John's writing of this letter called 1 John is he has this pastoral aim, and the pastoral aim is when you step inside the church, it should feel like you're entering another world. There should be a deep countercultural environment in that church. So John is talking throughout his letter about a church that's pulsating with signs of life, pulsating with, basically John is saying, I want to see this kind of church. I want to see 
people who love sound doctrine, who love the truth. I want to see a people who, whose love for God issues forth in obedience to God, obedience to his commands, and issues forth in love for one another as brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a very concrete rubber meets the road. Here's what it looks like when there's life on the inside. Here's how it shows up on the outside, and here's how you sense it and feel it in the culture of the church. So this is where we're ending this brand new series so that we can look at what truths in the life of the family of God, in the local church, what are the truths that we hold up together as God's people? And what are the things that if somebody steps inside, they hear us saying these things to one another in this life-giving gathering? Three truths we hold up and speak to one another. The first is this, pray and he hears you. Pray and he hears you. We say that to each other. Confidently say that. You see, the sound of a church made new in Christ, you step inside, you hear that kind of statement, you hear that kind of praying. Look at verse 14 again. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask, now, just pause for a second. John's favorite word for prayer is the word that simply means ask. So in other places in the New Testament, they prefer another term often. John just prefers the term that just means ask. So you see that term pop up. See it again? If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that, what we have, that we have what we have asked of him. Verse 16, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask. There's prayer again. And God will give life to that person, to those who commit a sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. And that's another word for ask, the word that's used for prayer there. So again, John's favorite word for prayer is the word that means ask. And he's saying, if we ask according to God's will, if we pray according to God's will, we see answers. God hears us when we pray according to his will. The natural question then becomes what? How do we pray with that kind of confidence? How do we pray according to God's will such that we can say, we expect a response, we expect an answer because we're praying according to God's will. And the answer is, we pray scripture. We pray God's word back to him. He reveals his will to us in his word. We pray his will back to him in prayer. And we know that we're not asking for things that we're just making up on our own. We're asking for the very things that align with the heart of God in the world. The better we know God's word, the more confident we are in prayer, and you see how confidence is one of the big ideas. Again, in verse 14, this is the confidence we have before him. We ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So friends, think about that in the, the culture of the church. Instead of just making up our own priorities and hoping it happens to be God's will, what if we went at it the other way? What if we dove into scripture, found God's will in his word, and then confidently ask for these things to happen in our lives and to happen in the church and to happen in the city and to happen in the world. And that's what you see the early church doing. They're praying to God the very truth that they see in his word and they're asking God to accomplish his mission in the world. You, you know, even, even Jesus, when he was discipling his, his disciples, he's walking with them and they say, teach us how to pray. And what does he say? He says, Come before the Lord and say, our Father who is in heaven, followed by seven asks. Ask for his name to be hallowed in the world, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Ask him for daily bread. Ask him for forgiveness of sins. Seven asks. The early church, they, they didn't just make up their own intuitive, you know, clever uh, discipleship program. They had a very basic discipleship program. They're a catechesis that walked you toward baptism. And what, what are you going to walk through? You're going to walk through the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And they said, if we can teach you these things and unpack what it means, what each of these things mean. You're going to know what to believe, the core uh, doctrines of the Christian faith and the Apostles' Creed. You're going to understand what God's will is, and you're going to understand how to talk to him and how to ask for him, uh, from him, things that he desires to do in your life. So we pray scripture. Second, we pray together. Notice the words, the plural pronoun there, if we ask and whatever we ask. The emphasis, friends, of spiritual formation in all categories, the emphasis in the New Testament is not individualistic. It's not you and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. It's the body of Christ growing together. All of us working together, growing together in him. It's, it's a corporate thing. Again, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and he doesn't say, my father, in heaven, it's our Father. So you come into the presence of God thinking about your brothers and sisters. Even if you happen to be alone, you're thinking about the fact that you're not alone. You're in a body. You're thinking of yourself in that corporate sense. The early church, they prayed with we pronouns, us pronouns, praying together in the book of Acts, and God responds. Friends, when we gather here on Sunday... And we're being led in prayer. Jay Gordon was leading us in prayer. And that is customary for us. Week after week after week, somebody will come out, often an elder, will come out and lead us in prayer. And the hope is, he's not up here praying by himself. The hope is, every member of the body of Christ is leaning forward, fully engaged, saying, whether out loud or in your own, the privacy of your own heart, saying, yes, do that. Work in our world, work in our lives, work in our families for your glory. We're, we're leaning into that. It's a culture thing. If somebody comes to your small group, do they notice the way you pray? I would encourage you, if you've never done a study in your small group about prayer, a great book, a great simple book, another book by Donald Whitney, same author, is a short little book called Praying the Bible that just injects um, freshness into the life of prayer for you as a Christian. It's very simple. Everybody can do it, and you learn how to open the text of God's Word and pray verse by verse right back to Him. Teach your small group. Learn together how to pray God's Word back to Him. It's not just corporate prayer in general, though, that John is talking about. When you read it in its context, John is talking about how God uses our prayers as a church to bring our wayward brothers and sisters back to him. That's the specific contextual focus here. So pray and he hears us. That leads us to the next one. Here's another thing we say in the body of Christ. Fall and we'll catch you. Pray and he hears us. Fall and we'll catch you. The prayers of the church here in this text reveal something about life in the family of God. And, and what does it reveal about life in the family of God? It reveals this. We want to help each other remain faithful to God. We want to make it to the end together. I'm going to need you. 
you're going to need me, and we're going to make it to the end together. Nobody's going to fall behind. Nobody's going to be left behind. That's so much of what the book of Hebrews is about. Is you, you see believers who are facing persecution in front of them, and they're turning around, and they're walking back in the other direction. And the book of Hebrews is saying, there's nothing back there. It's forward with Jesus or bust. We're all going together, persevering in him together. We want to remain faithful to God, and it's going to take our life together to, to bring that about. Verse 16, you see it? If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, so doesn't lead to final death, doesn't lead to judgment, is the idea there. So if you see a fellow believer committing a sin that's not leading to final judgment, he should ask, pray, and God will give life to that person, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to final judgment or final death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. So the main idea, it seems clear, right, in verse 16, especially the first part of verse 16, but the hard part is the latter part of verse 16. What do we do with this, there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying he should pray about that. In other words, is the apostle John saying, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, are we being told here in Scripture not to pray for certain people in the fellowship of the church? And the short answer is no, that's not John's purpose. He's not telling us not to pray for certain categories of people. What seems to be going on here is, is a similar idea to what we read in other parts of the New Testament. So the, the idea of the unpardonable sin, which is a very uh, involved conversation. We're not gonna get too deep into it. I'll come back to it in just a moment. But John seems to be referring to a similar idea, the idea of the unpardonable sin. So earlier in this same letter, John talks to us about the fact that there are people who used to be among us who no longer name the name. They, they went out from us, uh, and he's saying, so they're, they're not here anymore. They're not, they've disavowed the faith is the idea. There are people who were in the church, and now they've disavowed the faith. So John seems to be talking here about that idea. Now just notice, again, what the words are saying and what the words aren't saying. John doesn't forbid praying for those who left and are still in need of God's transforming grace. That's just not the situation he's specifically addressing here. That's not his point. So think, there's an analogy in the New Testament from the lips of Jesus himself. Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, and he's focused on praying for his disciples, and he says, I'm not praying for the whole world, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for my disciples. Now, it didn't mean that Jesus is saying, don't pray for the world. Jesus loved the world. Jesus was here to seek and save the lost, right? Jesus wasn't indifferent or hostile toward the world he came to save. So don't read into Jesus' statement in John 17, and don't read into John's statement and conclude that Scripture prohibits us from praying for some category of people for whom sin seems to be um, baked in. That's the point, right? Clearly, though, there's something sobering that we're all supposed to take from these words. And here's that sobering thing that I think we need to unpack. There are passages in scripture that suggest that there's a point of no return. Once someone has stepped inside and they've seen God's grace in Christ, they've tasted of the powers of the age to come and so forth, and then they turn away and they endure in that condition, they are practicing apostasy. 
They're tenaciously practicing apostasy. They are, as the New Testament would say, searing their conscience. That is a very, very sobering thing that the New Testament talks about, searing the conscience. There's such an active suppression of the truth that the person's repenter is broken. Their repenter is broken. It's, It's not so much that they can't repent, but that they get to a place where they have no interest in repenting, no desire to repent. Friends, here's the sobering thing to think about. The scariest thing isn't that we can get to a place where we rebel against God and God puts his hands on us in the midst of our rebellion. The scariest place to be is to rebel against God and practice apostasy to such a point where God takes his hands off of us. That's what you see in in the book of Romans, for example. The early goings of Romans where it, it, it talks about people who give themselves to practices that sear the conscience make someone incapable of sensing God's conviction and and God ends up taking his hands off. He gives them over to their debased desires to do what they insisted on doing and he takes his hands off. What's the point? Run to the light and don't play with false teaching. Run to the light and don't play with false teaching. Maybe you're here this morning, you feel like I'm losing the battle. Honestly, I'm losing the battle. Christian friend, here's what I would say to you. One, it's good that you're here. Continue to, don't disappear. Don't become invisible. Don't break off from fellowship. Don't give up. Stay out here in the light. Confess the worst of it. Here's the ideal, is that when you confess the worst of it on any given Tuesday to a friend in Christ, nobody should raise their eyebrows and say, what? How'd you get into that? Right? No, we know how he got into it. <laughs> we know what sin can do. We know it easily entangles us. We know it sinks its hooks into us and drags us down the road to places we don't want to be. We know, we know that story. We're familiar with it. If you're wondering if you're too far gone, you're not. You wouldn't be concerned. If you're too far gone, you wouldn't even be worried about it. The telltale sign of the unpardonable sin is the one who really didn't, did it doesn't care, plans to do it again tomorrow. Right, that's the idea. And, and yet here in this same letter, this John is saying, look, we're all gonna be involved in, subject to temptation and sin. Here's what we do though. Here's our next move. Confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you're wrestling with whether you've committed the unpardonable sin, God is working in you even now. Because of the wrestling, that itself is God's means of saying, hey, come on, you don't belong out there. Come on back. Come back to me. Walk in faithfulness with me. There's life here. You'll thrive here close to me in fellowship with me. Friend, look to Christ afresh this morning. Repent of sins afresh this morning. Run to the light. Don't play with false teaching. Here's another one. Run to your brothers and sisters with love and humility. You see how John is saying, you see a fellow believer committing sin. In other words, you're supposed to care. <laughs> right? Isn't that the, the, the idea that comes through in those words? You see a fellow believer and they're stumbling, they're, they're struggling to walk with God in faithfulness. You see the church getting involved and the, the way that gets involved in this particular text is by praying. So in the Old Testament, we pick up on the same kind of idea in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter four, it says two are better than one 
because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion, I love this picture, can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. And then he changes the metaphor. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? What a picture of the church. We warm those who are cold. And we pick up those who are falling. Is that us? I I pray that's us more and more. We are a warm blanket over your shivering soul. And we'll catch you when you fall. A friend of mine um, told a story about two members of his church and and something like this happened years ago um, and it left a deep imprint on this man's life. And I'll relay the story that he told me in an email. Richard and Andy worked in a factory outside a West Texas town. Andy's new faith was growing, but he told Richard his drive home was a daily battle. A few miles from his house was a fork in the road. A left turn led home, but a right took him to the strip club that had long been his escape. One afternoon, Andy confessed he craved to go to the club after work. Before Richard left, he prayed with Andy and assured him Jesus would help him resist. It was pouring rain when Andy began his drive. Approaching the fork in the road, he noticed something in the median. As the windshield wipers brushed aside the rain, he saw Richard standing at the fork with a large piece of cardboard. On it was an arrow pointing home. And he turned and left home that day and every day since. Friends, that's us. That's the church. Cardboard signs in hand. Turn left. (laughs) Turn toward life. Turn toward home. You're going to need to do it this week. You're going to need to do it again next week. I'm going to need you to say it to me this week. I'm going to need you to say it again to me next week. Turn homeward. I have so many stories that I could tell here of people in our church who were struggling with doubts and they were falling and they ended up telling me the story of I was falling and and this person caught me. And they'll often name the person who caught them. I met recently with a young lady who was, um, she had studied here at college in Birmingham and she was about to go do graduate work in another state and she wanted to meet. I didn't know what the agenda was for the meeting. She comes into the meeting, sits across from me and she just says, all I wanted to do was just get in here and just say, I'm so thankful for this church because it's changed my life. And she recounts a story of people, mainly one person, one woman and her husband who led a small group that she was invited to. And she said, it changed my whole life. I wasn't walking with Christ faithfully and they had so much to do with me going home, following him in faithfulness. And, and so I kept hearing this name, this first name of the woman and the first name of the husband. And so as soon as she, no sooner does she leave my office and I start asking around staff, hey, do you know of a couple in our church where the guy's first name is this and the lady's first name is this? Did all this research, finally found out, 15 minutes later, I'm emailing this couple and just saying, you did it. <laughs> you did the thing. You, you were the church. Thank you for being the church. Now clone yourselves, right? Be contagious. That's what the church is all about. It's the spirit of New Testament church life. It reflects the gospel. Why? Because the central story of the Christian faith is this, we've sinned against the God who made us. 
And God is perfect, and God judges sin. He doesn't tolerate evil and rebellion in his world, and so we have no way of making things right on our own. We can't repay the debt that we owe to God, but this holy God, this is the story of the gospel at the center of the Bible, this holy God did what we never could have expected. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come, die on the cross, live a perfect life, die on the cross, and rise again from the dead. We were falling into judgment. The Savior comes stretches his arms out on the cross and caught us in the arms of the mercy of God. All who look to Christ are caught in the arms of grace. Have you believed this good news? Friend, it's time to believe it. Believe this morning. Walk with Christ this morning. Walk into brand new this morning. Brook Hills, know this. This should be the sound bouncing off the walls, not just in this room, but every time we gather in smaller settings and do church life. Pray and he hears you. Fallen will catch you. And thirdly, know this, Jesus will keep us. Jesus will keep us. This letter has not exhorted us to be passive in the Christian faith. John's word, remain, is one of the words that he uses more often than any other. He uses 21 times in this short letter alone. Remain, stay here, don't disappear, hold on, don't give up ground, don't love the world. There, and there are signs of life in those who are remaining in Christ. And he's gonna close with a word of vigilancy, with a word of the agency, really, for the believer. He closes with a word. You see the last words of this letter? Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is not coasting down lazy river. This is, you got work to do, be vigilant, look around, be careful, keep yourself unentangled in this world. But the larger emphasis in these last verses is on Jesus' decisive role in your final salvation. You see verse, is it 18? Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. So who's that second referent, that second one that's referred to as the one born of God? Everyone who's been born of God, the one who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. I agree with this lucid commentary, Zondervan exegetical. It reads this way. So it's referring to that phrase, the one born of God keeps him. Perhaps John means to suggest the shared nature that reborn Christians have with the sinless man, Jesus Christ. By this reading, John reassures his readers that they are safe because Christ protects them. I love this. While the powers of evil may tempt, entice, and otherwise influence believers, even to the point of lapses into sin, the evil one cannot take hold of a child of God to remove them from the light and life and drag them back into darkness and death. I think that's right on. For all kinds of reasons, two of them are because Jesus said it in the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here's the question for us to ponder. How many of God's children will Jesus lose? And the answer is none. 
Jesus would say in John 6, of all those that the Father has given to, him, to me, I will lose none of them. Remember how Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. He prayed for his disciples. He said, Father, here's what I'm not asking. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm asking that you protect them from the evil one. It's the intention of God. I love J.I. Packer. His writings have shaped me in important ways throughout my Christian walk. Here's what Packer said many years ago. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. And I love here at the end of John's letter, after all these signs of life, marks of people made brand new, John says, Jesus does that. He keeps people. He keeps you out of the grip of the evil one. By the time you've read through the whole of this letter of 1 John, Jesus is the hero at every single crucial point. He brought us to eternal life, chapter one, verse two. He cleanses us from sin, chapter one, verse seven. He intercedes with the Father, chapter two, verse one. His death atones for our sin, chapter two, verse two. He destroys the devil's works, chapter three, verse eight. He demonstrates God's love, chapter three, verse 16. He's the reason Satan can't claim us again for darkness, chapter five, verse 18. Friend, the Christian life isn't easy. It's a battle for brand new. It's a battle for growth. But we fight in the confidence that Jesus is with us. We fight in the confidence that Jesus is for us. So Brook Hills, here's the challenge for us as we close this series. When someone steps inside the church, when someone steps inside your community, your small group, for example, it should feel different than any other community in the world. They should overhear us saying to one another and saying with a spirit of confidence and with a spirit of joy, pray and God hears you. Fall and we'll catch you and Jesus will keep us.